So today I want to share with you a special study. It'll actually encompass two different sermons this week and next week. And I am sharing with you a sermon I've titled, Why They'll Never Be Right. And as you've heard, we've read Revelation 13, verses 1 to 18. And I encourage anyone who has not read that passage to please do so now. The circumstances of our present time, I believe, necessitate public comment from this pulpit, at least, about these things and what Christians must think of them. Now, for those who may be listening by means of sermon audio, these messages are being recorded in the year 2022, the year of our Lord, in the month of March. Now, let me begin by saying the title, while they'll never be right, will have more meaning as we go through this and the sermon next week. I can't pack all of this into one sermon, and obviously we're beginning in almost the middle of the book of Revelation, a book full of highly symbolic images, panoramic visions, and all this sort of thing. So that's something else I can't do in two sermons where I'm dealing with a specific topic about why they'll never be right and what it is they will never be right about. So I can't cover the entire book of Revelation in that. Okay, with that preface, let me begin by saying that the uh, popular TV preacher, David Jeremiah, is currently presenting his radio and TV audiences and his congregation, I assume, What he believes is evidence that we are living in the last days. One of the foundational principles of our own venerable Bob Jones University here in the Greenville County area was the belief that we are living in the last days. Popular pastor John MacArthur of California, a man we respect because of his, at least his belief in the five points of Calvinism as taught by Scripture, and also because his willingness to stand up to state tyranny in California against the so-called COVID lockdowns. But he has, as a dispensationalist, routinely taught his congregation that the nation of Russia, so much in the news today, is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. And that what we are seeing in our time is the direct fulfillment of this predicted in the book of Revelation and other prophecies. According to John MacArthur and many others, the Antichrist is to be a ruthless, dictatorial ruler who will come on the world scene in the future. And according to some of them, in the not-too-distant future, if not already present. And this this Antichrist will enslave large portions of the world's population. He will compel millions of people to worship him as God, among other things. And according to the same Bible teachers, the Bible tells us all about these these great issues, about this Antichrist, or as he's also known in their way of thinking, the beast, in places like Revelation 13, as you've heard, where it speaks, they say, of the Antichrist and this mysterious number 666. Now, among those who teach and believe this way, there has been a lot of speculation over the years as to who this future Antichrist will be, and where he will come from, and when he will make his appearance. 
And this becomes a matter of great urgency for many Christians, especially new Christians who seem to be in evangelical circles at least. They seem to be introduced to this sort of dispensationalistic end times business five minutes after they become Christians. You know, back in the 1970s and 80s, those were special, especially fruitful decades for the prophecy teachers and speculators. And about that same time, there was a book written that identified, of all people, Ronald Reagan, former president, the late Ronald Reagan, as the Antichrist, and the then Pope John Paul II as the false prophet of the Antichrist. Now, Ronald Reagan had six letters in each of his three names. Ronald Wilson Reagan. And that totals the dreaded number 666. And I saw something somewhere that said, I don't know reason to doubt it, I guess, that at some point in his life, maybe when he was governor of California, I don't know, he lived at an address that had the, the house number 666. Obviously, Ronald Reagan was not the Antichrist. But he was only one of many in a long list of names whom the dispensationalists have assured us, and, and by the way, not a few premillennialists generally, that this person or that person was or is or will be the Antichrist. Hitler, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein. You know, I remember, I was in seminary uh, when that whole Saddam Hussein business flared up. And all of a sudden, the dispensational writers, the guys at Dallas Seminary and all these other places, they're producing massive numbers of books claiming that you know, Iraq being the location of ancient Babylon and, and Saddam Hussein this and that. Like they've all, it's, it's been there in scripture all along. But for some reason, they never found a reason to tell us about Saddam Hussein and Iraq prior to the early 1990s. Friends, they'll never be right. Anwar Sadat, the former president of Egypt, about whom I'll say more later. Osama bin Laden and now Vladimir Putin the president of Russia, all these have been presented to gullible Christians as the Antichrist or somehow connected to him. I well, I well recall, I maybe it was back in the 1980s, when the late Reverend Jerry Falwell got himself into some politically incorrect hot water. Now, he fully believed all this business, but he said publicly now many years ago, that he believed that the Antichrist was alive in the world at that time and that he was probably a Jew living in Israel. And that's what got him into a lot of hot water. But he was simply echoing the typical dispensationalist line of thought. A line of thought that has come to be unquestioned dogma in a lot of evangelical churches. You know, this is the view that was spread far and wide in the evangelical church world in the early part of the 20th century through the Schofield Reference Bible, but then later in the latter part of the 20th century by the hugely popular paperback book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Well, okay, I'm sure that some, maybe even most of you, have heard a lot of this before, one way or another. And for some of you, you may have assumed that in spite of, you know, what appeared, I think even to the average person, self-evident problems with all of these teachings that, well, it must be in some way, if not totally, what the Bible teaches. So we want to identify the beast, the one who has this number 666. And we're going to do so by following five principles in this message and then also next time 
Five principles that I think we must follow if we're going to avoid the kind of fanciful, useless, and frankly, unhelpful speculation like the ones that I've already shared with you today. Now, these are five principles that I believe are suggested to us from the Bible itself. So here they are. Here's the first one. The beast's name. The name is linked to this number, 666. Well, that beast must be a man. He must be a human being. Notice again verse 13. I'm reading it from the New King James Version this time. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. In the Greek, it says the number of an anthropo, which means human being of the male sex. Why am I emphasizing that point? It's it's self-evident in the text. Yes, it is. But you see, some people have claimed that this beast antichrist will be a demonic spirit, a demonic being, or that it will be a political movement. Uh, I remember some years ago, there were people claiming that it wouldn't be a man at all. But And this is back, you know, before the more modern technocratic age, back in, say, the 60s and 70s that the beast and the Antichrist would actually be a giant computer that was rumored to be housed in the United Nations that already had in it the names of every human being on the planet so they could be marked and identified. That sounds kind of familiar today, doesn't it? Well, you know, I'm not, I'll have more to say about this, other, this part of it next time. But look, it doesn't matter if the United Nations or the World Economic Forum or Greenville County, for that matter, has a giant computer with everybody's name in it. It's still not a man, and the Bible tells us the Antichrist, the beast, is, was, will be a man. Secondly, this man must be someone who has an evil nature, or of an evil nature. He must be someone who is blasphemous, irreverent, profane, idolatrous, and who possesses, according to Revelation 13, 2 and 7, great authority. All these things are important clues, and up to this point, there's nothing too unusual about it. So that leads me to the third thing. Because he has great authority, it must mean, then when he wrote this, and also in our time, a political leader. When we think of someone who has great authority, it automatically connects them somehow, someway with politics and government. You notice that the text says in verse 1, 13, 1, that he has ten crowns and, uh, on his head and uh, of horns on his head. So to have a crown on one's head symbolizes political power, king-like authority. And to have ten of these horns on his head, on his crown, would seem to indicate a particularly vast and widespread power and authority. Now let me stop right here and say that up to this point, Almost all Christians of all different eschatological persuasions pretty much agree on those three things. But the next two of the five is where things begin to diverge. This is where things are often ignored by those who take the different point of view. And that, I believe, is what leads too many folks down the wrong path in attempting to understand Revelation 13 and, frankly, the entire book of Revelation. So here's the fourth principle. Whoever he is, he must be a contemporary of the author of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, who wrote this book. That is to say that this man, this beast slash antichrist, whoever he is, 
must have been someone who coexisted, who lived at the same time as the Apostle John did in the first century. Why is, this, why is this not talking about a future dictatorial ruler who will rise one day to power and compel the world to do his bidding as if he were God? Because the author, please note, the author of those words plainly said that what he was about to write concerned the things that were going to soon take place. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Hold your place here in 13, because we're going to look back to chapter 1, and then we're going to look to chapter 22. But as you're turning to chapter 1, let me just ask you this question. It's a rhetorical question. If um, you make an appointment to see me in my office, and say the appointment's at 10 a.m., and you call me and say, you know, Pastor, I'm running late, uh, but I'll be there soon. You know, we both understand what that means. I'm not expecting you to delay your arrival for 10 or 15 years. I mean, if you don't show up by 11 o'clock, I'm going to think something's wrong. And likewise, if you say I'm going to be there soon, I don't think that means you're going to wait a thousand years. But you see, people would have us believe that's exactly what's happening here in Scripture. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I, I mean, that's, they say that's what's happening, but it isn't. It's very clear what is taking place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which, which must shortly take place. And he sent and symbolized it or signified it by his angel his serv- to his servant John. Then look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads uh, and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Shortly take place, time is near. That means soon. Imagine you are a Christian somewhere in the Roman Empire in that mid-first century time frame. You're part of a small band of this, this new movement called the followers of the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you've seen some persecution. And you hear that the great apostle John, whom Jesus loved, has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and he's written a letter to the churches all around that part of the Roman Empire. And you're in one of those churches. You're in one of those family house meeting churches. And you hear this, that this is soon to take place, that the time is near, and you're thinking, bless God, it's going to happen in 2,000 years. No. (laughs) No, friends. That is ridiculous. And that's why they'll never be right in this kind of silly speculation. Twice in one chapter, here in chapter 1, John alerted the original readers and hearers of these words that the events that Christ had shown him in the visions were about to happen. They're right around the corner for them. Uh, Another translation, the New Jerusalem Bible, verse 1. What is now to take place very soon? What is now to take place very soon? That catches the flavor of the urgency of the Greek text. And then in another translation, the things that must happen soon. And when we come, so I want you to turn to chapter 22, when we come to the very last chapter of the book, the Apostle John underlines and stresses that point, these points again. Look at 22 verse 6. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, He's saying this to them, I am coming quickly. And then verse 10, he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy, for the time is at hand. 
So here then are three times in the last chapter of the book that Christ himself tells these original readers and hearers of the words that they are the ones to witness the incredible events described in this book. Now friends, I realize that for many of you, maybe you've heard this type of analysis before. You've heard it maybe many times. And I'd I'd like not to think this, but, you know, human nature being what it is, perhaps some of you grow weary of hearing of this kind of repetition. Now, I've been in this area uh, since 2016. I've not preached through the book of Revelation, or I don't think any chapter of it. So you haven't had any repetition for me. But let me assure you that these things are repeated for important reasons. I mean, look, the Bible repeats this point over and over again, as you can see for yourself. I'm not ginning this up. It's in the text of Scripture. God has taken pains to tell us that the majority of the things described in this book were to take place in the past, not in the far distant future of the 21st century, from their vantage point, the the original audience, but from our vantage point, at least, in the far distant past is when these things occurred in the first century. And then finally, the fifth principle. The name and the number of the beast slash antichrist must be that of someone who was relevant and known to those first century believers. Remember that it was they who are the ones John the Apostle specifically exhorted to give heed to these warnings and writings. Can you imagine writing a letter to someone and giving them an urgent warning about something that absolutely will not affect them in any way, shape, or form, but is meant for somebody hundreds and hundreds of years later? Again, it beggars the imagination. It's it's ridiculous. In chapter 13, verse 18, if you're not back at chapter 13, please turn there. These people, the, the original audience, they are the ones whom John expects to be able to calculate and understand the name of the beast by figuring out the meaning of the number of his name. Now, you know, you and I read something like that, and we don't have a clue what to do about it. And that's another reason why the people who speculate on this sort of thing, as if it's something happening next week, that's why they'll never be right about this. Now, there are many other reasons why they'll never be right. We haven't, we haven't come to those yet. But so far, I hope you can see these people who've identified these various political and world figures of the past and the present, they're not right. See, we look at this number, this number of the beast, this number of the Antichrist, and you know we, we have to come up with wild ideas about it because we don't really know what to do with it. But those people back in that day... They knew exactly what to do. They knew what John was telling them. And if we wish to know what he was telling them, we need to look to the past and not to the future. We need to inform ourselves, for example, of events that were taking place in that time, in the Roman Empire of that time, in the first century, and not of the goings-on of Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden in the 21st. Now, I'm not saying those things are unimportant, and we may have occasion to talk about that in the next message. But for now, we're trying to understand what the text of Scripture tells us and what we're to do about it. So look again at verse 18. He says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. 
It's number. Now it says in the New King James Version and most all English translations, except for a few I'm going to mention in a moment. It says 666. So he's sending a coded cryptic message to his readers. Here's another translation, a highly idiomatic translation. And it reads this way. Here is the solution to that cipher. Let one who can reason, reason figure out the beast's number. It is a man's number, 666. So he did not intend for his naming the beast to be just an open idea that anybody and everyone could read what, it's, what he said. Somehow he's expecting his readers to be able to figure out the name of the beast through this number. And okay, here's one of the major points in the misunderstanding of this whole thing. And that is this. The number. I realize what it may say on the pages of Scripture in front of you, unless you happen to have one of the translations that actually gives you the literal translation. But it's technically not three sixes. The number is not 666, but it is, in fact, a specific number, 666. In the Greek text of the New Testament... And in some of the older English translations, that's how it literally reads. Now, there was a Greek, there's a Greek word for the number six. It doesn't, in the Greek text, it doesn't repeat that number three times. No, it gives you the sum number of 666. So does the old Geneva Bible. So does the King James Version. So does the 1977 and 1995 New American Standard Bible. Now, you say, what are you, straining at a gnat? Is this a, a difference without any real meaning? No, this is very, very important because what is happening is that John, the author, is using what was in that day a common way of writing and calculating. See, in the ancient world, each letter of the Greek alphabet and of the Latin alphabets, the predominant language around those places where he lived and the other Christians, each of those letters and those languages was assigned a numerical value. Now, you may not be familiar with that at all in the Greek. I don't think I am either. But I think all of us know something about it from Latin. You say, well, I never took Latin. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> but you know what? Most of us in this room, and most of you within my hearing, know something about Roman numerals, don't you? Roman numerals are nothing more than the letters from the Latin alphabet who've been assigned numerical values. For example, the Roman letter X. It equals 10. The letter C equals 100. The letter L equals 50, and so on and on. So this is a majorly important clue as to the meaning of the number and the name. The number corresponds to the name of a man. Now, all we have to do then is figure out what this number equals in some language, and we've got the name. Okay, the book of Revelation was written in Greek, as was all the New Testament. And as I said, the Greek letters have numerical values, like the Roman letters, have numerical values. But in this case, it's not going to help us. See, the Apostle John is an Israelite. He's of the Hebraic Judaistic mindset. Now, many of the Christians to whom he wrote this letter, and that part of what they called Asia, we call it the, the, the Middle East today, they would have been converted Israelites, converted Jews, both he and they would have been most familiar with Hebrew or Aramaic. They probably spoke some Greek, maybe even some Latin, but the day-to-day -day language, say for example, of Jesus and his followers was Hebrew and Aramaic, especially Aramaic. And that language, the Hebrew language, 
like the Greek, like the Roman uh, Latin letters, had numerical values attached to the characters of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are two factors that we must know here. The style of the writing of the book of Revelation shows that it was written by a man who, though he's writing in Greek, was nonetheless thinking like a Hebrew. There are many, many Hebrew expressions in this text, although they're written in Greek, all throughout the book. It is the most Hebraic book of the Greek New Testament. We can see this in our own time. You can have someone, say, who maybe from a completely different culture, for whom English is not their first language, but maybe they know, know it well enough to say, write a book. But you can see in the manner of expression and some of the things that they're writing that they're not expressing things like we would if you know, we were writing the same book. There's a difference, and that's evident in the Greek writing of this book, Revelation. Secondly, John knew that the Roman authorities who had already banished him and imprisoned him on the Isle of Patmos could have very easily understood everything he wrote in either Greek or Latin, but most of them would have either not or at least struggled to understand anything connected to Hebrew. And finally, when we take this number, 666, and we cipher out its numerical value in both Greek and Latin, well, it presents us with a lot of meaningless words. It it doesn't give us a clue at all. So for all of those reasons that I've mentioned here in these two points, we've got to look to the Hebrew language for the answer. And when we do that, something startling is revealed to us. The beast with the number 666 was no less than Nero, the emperor, the Roman Caesar of that time. He was the Roman Caesar at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. And when you reverse engineer this number, 666, if you go to the Hebrew alphabet and you find those letters in the Hebrew alphabet that correspond to 666, it spells out without any doubt the name Nero Caesar. I recall a time almost 40 years ago now when, as a relatively new Christian, I sat watching a TV program on a local station in the city where I was living, and it was a program on Bible prophecy. Um, it, It was talking about a program that was coming up next time on which the author of a book titled 666, When Your Money Fails, was to be interviewed. And I was very eager to watch that. And so when it came on, I tuned in, and I heard that author speaking, and she said she'd identified who the Antichrist was. And she wrote that the Antichrist, now this was around, you know, 1978 or so, she, uh, she wrote that the Antichrist was no less than, at that time, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. And part of the reasoning that she gave for that was that according to hers and many of the dispensationalists, that Sadat had signed a peace treaty with the Israeli state. And according to them, pretending to offer peace to the Jews was to be, so they say, one of the hallmarks of the Antichrist rise to power. Well, shortly after that program, I I was very excited about this. I was a new Christian. Like I said, these are big-ticket items when you're a new Christian, especially back in the 70s and 80s. And I made up my mind I needed to get a copy of that book at all costs. But I never did. And let me tell you why. Because shortly after that program aired, I don't remember how much time passed, but it wasn't long. October 6, 1981, 
While attending a military parade in Cairo, Egypt, the Antichrist was shot to death by terrorists. Yes, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. So much for that theory. Another example of why they'll never be right. It's but one of many examples of why those who make these claims always get it wrong. Now, it may have occurred to you at this point, how does all this, how does all this have to do with Nero? I mean, if that's the, the meaning of the number of the name, what was it about him that led John to give him such an awful designation? Well, I can assure you, friends, based on what we know from the eyewitness historic testimony of both Roman and non-Roman historians, Emperor Nero Caesar was richly deserving of this title of the beast. He was one of the most wicked, evil, despicable, immoral, and corrupt human beings who's ever lived, leave alone who's ever been Caesar of Rome. He might even be as bad as some of the people in Washington, D.C. today. Now, next week, we're going to come face-to-face with him in a more direct way, and we are going to see why he earned that title. But we're, all going to see, we're also going to see why he was not the Antichrist. And as I conclude this, I want to do so challenge you, challenging you to do this. And I'm going to stop it here. Between now and next Lord's Day, I want to challenge you to read through, once again, chapter 13. You get out all the translations you have or have access to. You can go on your computer you know, go to Bible Gateway or blueletterbible.com, and they have 75, 80 different translations, I guess. Maybe you have a high-powered computer Bible translation program on your phone or your computer yourself. Read through chapter 13 numerous times. Read through the whole book of Revelation. And I want you to be able to tell me when we come back how many times the Antichrist is mentioned in this chapter and in this book. Until then... Let us pray.